I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. I love that song. I'm in love with that song. Welcome to another edition of the Albums That Made Us series on the I'm In Love With That Song podcast. This is the Pantheon Podcast Network, and I am your host, Brad Page. We usually cover individual songs on this show, looking at how they were written, recorded, and produced. But on this series within a series, we take a broader view and look at the way music affects our lives. So I've been asking some other fine folks who've thought deeply about the importance of music to be a guest on this show to talk about an album that made a big impact on their lives. So this episode, we're lucky enough to have Greg Renoff join us. Greg is a fantastic writer and the author of two books that I think are essential reading, Van Halen Rising, which is the definitive book on Van Halen's early years, and he worked on the autobiography of the legendary producer Ted Templeman, highly recommended. So let's plug in and turn it up. Here's my conversation with Greg. Well, Greg Renoff, thanks for joining me for this edition of The Albums That Made Us. One of the things that I'm always interested in is the the way that music can inspire us and change the direction of our lives. When I asked you to come on this show to talk about an album that meant a lot to you, you actually picked a record that's a big favorite of mine. So I'll let you tell us which album you picked and what it means to you. The album I picked is Deep Purple's Burn. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that album. That album really did have a big impact on me when I was a teenager and I heard it. So I'm looking forward to talking about it. Yeah, so about where were you in your fandom? Like, was this one of the first 10 records you bought or was it like further down the line? Oh, yeah, this would have been further down the line. So, you know, I'm trying to remember how I got to Deep Purple Burn. I suspect how this happened, believe it or not, was that... um, Deep Purple had always been a band that I had an uncle who was about 15 years older than me. And so he was always kind of telling me about the 60s music and about bands he liked. And Purple and Blackmore was a band he talked about. And I probably had heard, you know, obviously Smoke on the Water. This would have been like mid-80s when this would have really kind of come on my radar where I would have probably been like, oh, that's Deep Purple. And then soon after that, a friend of mine told me about, we were in high school, told me about this record store. Now, the name is escaping me, but people who are, anyone who's from New Jersey might remember, it was in Wayne, New Jersey. And it was a place where you could go and get imports. It was about 30 minutes from where I lived in northern New Jersey. But it had bootlegs, and it also had a video collection that you could rent. So obviously, if you went to Blockbuster, you weren't going to be able to rent a Japanese VCR tape of... Ingve live in Japan with Jeff sure. Soto or something like that. But it, this was the type of place that that's what they kind of catered to. So they probably had like 200 tapes, maybe more, 300, that you could rent. And uh, I don't remember how we got onto it, but we, I saw the California Jam. Yeah. Live in California Jam. Now, that was something I don't think that was ever played on MTV. And I remember we watched it. It was probably one of those Friday nights where it was like, you know, you have the TV party, like Black Flag says, where you sit in the basement, you sneak the beer down there. My mom probably had gone to sleep and we were doing right. whatever else we were doing, like kind of getting the right mindset to watch this thing. Yeah. And um, it was pretty 
mind blowing. I mean, I think I can look at it now, the performance and kind of look at certain things and go, Oh, well, it wasn't maybe all that, that I thought it was, but the, the size of the crowd and the camera slash guitar destruction that Blackmore pulls off. That's yep. very famous. He destroys the, the, the TV camera and smashes the guitar right. and that goes on for like, you know, eight minutes or something like that. Right. That really turned me on to the burn material. I'm, and I'm pretty sure that's what happened is that's how I got to burn. And then I'm sure I already had machine head. I'm sure I already had perfect strangers then went and got the burn cassette. And man, I actually liked that album probably better than the other two. And yeah, that was, you know, it became a constant companion to me in the car with the same friend. We used to spend a lot of time driving around town or whatever, and we would listen to this tape. But that was it. But those, those songs, you, you, I can go through them, but they're basically from front to back. I mean, I, I love that album. Well, I'm a huge Deep Purple fan. You know, the late 70s was my kind of teenage rock and roll discovery years. Right. Kiss was the first band that I got into, like so many kids from my generation. But really, Deep Purple was that second band that I got into a, a big way. And, of course, that was the when live albums were king. And everyone was coming out with live albums and they were huge. And so I bought Made in Japan, which is just one of the greatest live albums of all time. I think it's so good. And that real that was what hooked me big time. So then I went back to the well and I remember ordering uh, Made in Europe Mm -hmm. um, and Machine Head. And I can't remember which one I got first, but made in europe was either the second or the third deep purple record i got and of course that has coverdale and hughes on it so that's a right. whole new discovery right of like well, wait, well who are these guys and i was totally blown away by that and from there i got burn and of course i, I love richie's guitar playing i mean how can you not and john lord is a monster on keyboards but for me the secret sauce in that band is just those two incredible singers two very different styles but they just sound so so great together burn was recorded in montreux switzerland where they recorded right machine head uh in november of 73 glenn hughes came out of uh trapeze the band trapeze so he had some history behind him he was experienced but coverdale was literally picked out of obscurity it's like a cinderella story a rock and roll cinderella story he was um he was a nobody who suddenly found himself in front of what at the time was one of the biggest rock bands in the world because smoke in the water was a huge hit at that point the album opens with burn it's one of the tracks credited to all five it's a killer riff i think it's a better riff than smoke on the water The uh, solo in Burn always seems like the sort of natural next step from Highway Star or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's just a cla- like one of those, like, there's certain guitar players who could solo over certain grooves for, like, hours. And then you always get, like, that that type of, like, fast Ian Pace groove is, like, Blackmore could just, like, <laughs> do his guitar tricks and do his solo for six, seven, eight minutes. And, you know, we wouldn't get bored. It's just, it's just kind of made for that.
you're dead on, I think, with the Highway Star equivalent. To me, the the riff was like him almost probably intentionally trying to one-up the Smoke on the Water riff. Mm-hmm. And the solo is almost one-upping the Highway Star solo, although that, that one's hard to beat. But this mm-hmm. solo is great, too. And then it kind of goes into that pseudo-classical segment, which... I think there would be no Ingve Malmsteen if there were no burn, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> That's great. That's a great, a great observation. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the one thing I wanted to mention here too, which is the right form to mention it, is that as everybody probably knows who knows my books, I'm a huge Van Halen guy. And I always thought that, um, you know, Light at the Sky by Van Halen, that was kind of Eddie's, uh, you know, basically his, his take on that type of riff. When I hear Burn and then I listen to the two Light at the Sky by Van Halen, I really am like, wow, that's the you know, that's the kind of the, the influence, right? The black horn influence. It does. It's not like a rip off of the purple, right, but you're right. like, that's the type of thing where you're like, yeah, this, this, this guy's riffs, like you're saying really had a massive, massive influence on the guys who followed. Yeah. And tell me if you think I'm off base here, but I think Coverdale is a huge influence on David Lee Roth's vocals. Um, I, I hear a lot of that, or at least him trying to be that. You know, it's funny you bring that up. And I'll tell you one thing that's interesting to me is that when I was working on Van Halen Rising, I actually had the chance to ask Michael Anthony this question. Uh, Mike Anthony, the bass player who joins Van Halen in 1974, had his own group where he was the lead singer. High, high voice, bass player, you know, probably not a guy who's suited to sing a lot of lead, but like has a very, very good voice and can, could, you know, could sing some leads occasionally. And I actually asked him about that. I said, when he, when you joined Van Halen, burn was huge was there any thought of you becoming like a a guy who would do more singing and he sort of laughed and said well dave's in in so many words he said like you know dave's ego that wasn't going to be in part of the equation but he didn't like dismiss the idea out of hand like Mm -hmm. it sort of made sense and i think that you're you're right insofar as that i would imagine that even if roth never credits coverdale as an influence on him that he certainly would have heard something like the burn album and been like this is more in my wheelhouse, obviously, than the stuff that Gillen was doing, like kind of um, as a vocalist writ large. I mean, and the screams aside, but it's sort of like the way that uh, Roth could not sing the way that way that Ian Gillen sang, obviously. Well, well, yeah, I mean, Gillen's in another guy in a league of his own. I mean, it's just amazing this band had those three singers, like the three of the greatest rock vocalists of all time. Um, second track on the album might just take your life. This is one of those ones that would never have been in Ian Gillen's wheelhouse, but it's so perfect mm-hmm. for Coverdale's vocal styles. 
John Lord just really rocks this song. No guitar solo in this song, which is interesting for a Deep Purple track. And I've read that it was influenced by the song Chest Fever by Mm. the band. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The whole almost like gospel feel at the beginning of it with the organ and stuff like that. It's really, you're right, it really was really, really well suited for him. Coverdale is really giving us all. And the melody, right? I mean, it's never a song that's going to be a hit single, so to speak, but it's just a great singable melody when you can hum along very easily to. And, you know, sort of like the pre-chorus part, you can hold me all the way up through the yeah. chorus. That's really like a, a great hook. You can hold me. Lay Down, Stay Down. Um, not crazy about the lyrics on this one, but um, Ian Pace just really tears it up. Yeah. And there's a lot of great drumming on this record. Um, I think it's a great Blackmore solo. It's one of my favorite solos of his on the record. It sounds like, you know, there's the structured, worked out, highway star type Blackmore solo. And then there's sort of the improvised in the studio. And that's how I think this this one feels to me like he just went for it. But I love it. <laughs> one of my favorites on the album but it's just a great third song on the first side of an album like this and uh to me one of the real points of clear evidence of the greatness of this record it's like there's there's not a weak track on it right um, and, and it's interesting because it's like it doesn't necessarily get mentioned as one of the great albums of the 70s because like you've got machine head you've got made in japan and it, it seems like that's sort of where people run out of steam where it comes talking about deep purple like giving credit but this album is just completely brilliant from start to finish. The next one on it uh, is Sail Away. You already mentioned that one. This was a Blackmore Coverdale co-write. I've heard this was one that Richie actually came up with in the Mark II era, but I think it probably at the period where he's really frustrated with Gill and, <laughs> and just held it back. Right. Um, but it's, uh, it's another one with the trade-off vocals, great Richie solo, great bass playing in this one too. first verse of sail away you're drifting on the empty ocean with no wind to fill your sail and it's almost again i'm not going to overstretch the comparison don't get me wrong but it's like sort of like that cashmere thing where you immediately have the vision like i don't know who wrote the lyric there if it was coverdale wrote it 100 or what blackmore brought to the table i assume he wasn't much of a lyricist but it really is um you know you imagine being in a boat marooned just drifting with no wind right it's like you can kind of yeah. like visualize that if you're drifting on an empty ocean Such a 
it is one of those songs that allows me to sort of say, hey, you know, Coverdell, you know, when he really uh, dialed it in, was quite, quite good. I mean, quite good lyricist. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's in the CD booklet for the reissue or somewhere else that I read that, you know, this was his first time recording anything, really. Right. And that he was so nervous that he wrote like two or three sets of lyrics for every song <laughs> uh, that he would be up late at night you know, after they rehearsed or whatever, just writing lyrics because he was just terrified that they would hate what he wrote. Right. And so, he, you know, he put the extra effort in that I suppose when you got to the fifth White Snake record, that wasn't such a pressing <laughs> requirement, you know? Um, right, right, right. You Fool No One. Great groove, right? It's just, and what a way to start the second side of the record. I mean, yeah. I, just, I immediately got excited. I thought about that song, right? And, and just the interplay between the drums and the guitar, right? It's incredible. Yeah. Incredible. the dual vocals and everything yeah the harmony vocals yeah are. that's the one song where they rather than alternate lines i think they pretty much sing that whole song together in harmony which is yeah. just um, yeah. sounds fantastic that that drum beat's amazing but richie's riff is smoking too you know like you said it's the, the, the interplay between those two things is just fantastic you know and, it, and this one it's about you're finally seeing that this person your relationship with is cheating on you or whatever. But, you know, the, the lyrics a little bit more of a sophisticated take on that type of thing in terms of what it could be like in the hands of someone who just like wants to like completely like mail it in. So that's what I'm saying, too. It's like right. it's, it's an old, very obviously it's a very old. Like, oh, can we write a song about, oh, about a guy who's being wronged by his woman who cheats on him. But I, I actually think this one is one of the better lyrics on the record. Mm -hmm. And then there's what's going on here, which I believe was. <laughs> maybe the closest thing to uh, a filler track and that it's one they worked up in the studio, I believe, but I actually really like the song a lot. I like so, it too. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great groove. It's just kind of a straightforward blues rocker, but the way they sound trading off their vocals, they just sound like they're having a blast. The two singers on this thing, I could see them in my mind. Anyway, I picture them both at, at the same mic, you know, switching back and forth.
in my head, that's the way I like to picture them cutting this record, just having a, a ball in the studio pounding this one out. The other thing is just the Blackmore groove and swing is so great on this one. I mean, he's always great, right? But this is like you're really, and they're like, it's almost like you expect the hand claps to come in. Like, you know, it's it's, it's a really uh, a fun, fun song. It's sort of, it's more like, you know, like blues and 50s rock than it is like neoclassical Heavy right. metal, like they were yeah, this, of, yeah, there's they were none of that neoclassical thing in this track at all. This is as close to a party song as you get on this record, right. I think. And then that leads us into, talk about uh, blues rockers. I mean, Mistreated is, it is their greatest just straight blues song. That, such a showcase for Coverdale's vocals. He's just great. Yeah, and the uh, Blackmore riff is so brilliant and so powerful and so simple. And again, the lyric itself is not even that interesting of a lyric, but the emotion, right? It just gets that emotion across. And that's one of the things that's really great about this song, too. It's just like you said, that between Blackmore's emotion he's getting through his playing and then the way Coverdale sang it, it really sticks with you. It's such a great song. And yeah, Richie's playing. I mean, the thing about Richie is he can play very gently, but he's also one of the most ferocious guitar players ever. You know, Richie has a temper. I mean, he's fairly, as the Cal Jam video shows, he's not a guy to be messed with. And it really comes across in his playing. I mean, he just can sound so fierce. Like, you just you just want to back away. You're right. That's one of the things that really, I was trying to get to about, what I really liked about Blackmore was the dynamics where he would like basically turn down the volume on the guitar and play very, very softly and very quietly. And then he would just sort of crank it up yep. and blow your head off. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. to go back to Coverdale, I, if I remember correctly, Coverdale was a shoe salesman. Yeah, he was working in like some kind of boutique. I mean, he was like a not boutique, a right. professional musician. No. He, he had a day job. It's funny. The other thing too I remember reading is that he was a bit chubby and like he had like right. glasses and they were like, okay, start taking these pills and, you know, start washing your face and let's get rid of the glasses. Like, like they're basically like, you know, they had to do like the, the boot camp and be like, right. this isn't going to work as a rock star. You can't have like a belly and like, you know, look yeah. like you haven't seen the sun in, in two years and have these goofy glasses on. It's interesting because Coverdale kind of grew into be this like sex god figure in the late 80s because yeah. of MTV. And it's sort of interesting. It's like, you know, hey, man, you, you fake it till you make it, right? He like kind of like worked his way up to that, that point. I've been
the other thing I'd say is too is that you got to give credit to the guys in purple for seeing the talent, right? Where you might be like, oh, I don't know, this guy didn't look that great, whatever. Like they 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 saw the raw potential, right? In Coverdale, and we're like, okay, this guy we can pair him with Glenn Hughes, and so yeah, and, and credit to Coverdale too, because as you as you point out, like completely put him on the the edge of terror all the time. But you know, they saw the talent and they stuck with him and got him through that, and it's really a testament to to Coverdale. Really uh, admire him for that. Yeah, it's so hard to imagine just being plucked out of obscurity like that right. into into this huge band and the pressure that must have been on him. Like, it's one thing to replace the drummer. It's another thing to replace your lead singer in any band. Yeah, and I mean, we could kind of go through and think about something like, you know, Brian Johnson, he had already sung on some records. Obviously, Dio, we could go through the whole host of, quote-unquote, second-generation singers for bands. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, he was probably the most obscure. Um, You're joining, like, one of the biggest bands in the world at the time. I mean, Purple was obviously right there with Zeppelin in terms of popularity at that moment in time. And so you're, it's just, yeah, it's like replacing Robert Plant or something like that. It's kind of incredible. I can't think of another band where you have the, the level of the band versus the stature of Coverdale when he came into the band, a, a top selling touring act that just finds some guy selling shoes <laughs> and gives him the gig as lead singer, you know? Uh, and especially when you've got Glenn Hughes right there, who easily could have taken the lead vocal role if they right. decided to go that route. And you got to give some props to Hughes, too, for for not putting up a stink about it. You could imagine that some people might be like, well, what's, you know, I should sing all the songs, right? I just sang a trapeze. Why shouldn't, right. <laughs> you know, credit to him because it worked. Yeah, everything I've read, it's always come across that they were very... Um, you sing this part. No, you sing this part. Like it was right. this very cordial, like not competitive, not at each other's throats or fighting for dominance. It was very friendly and cooperative. And that's amazing that there was no headbutting over, over that. Cause you know, nothing, nothing says prima donna like lead singer. And then the album closes out with the, uh, the instrumental a 200, which is really a John Lord piece. Yeah. Although Richie, gets off a great solo. It's my least favorite track on the record, but by no stretch is it is it bad. It's I just prefer all the other tracks over it. But yeah, I always like you know that's the one thing I would always question about the record. I would have liked them to have a stronger way to close the record. Again, there's nothing wrong with the song, but it's just you know after mistreated, it's almost like if I had been sequencing the record, I might have said either let's cut a two you know this last this last track out or find a way to make mistreated the album closer. Yeah, I think I might like it more had it been in front of mistreated rather than after it. I agree with you. I would have sequenced the record a little bit differently, but there's that other bonus track. Uh, I've never actually said it out loud. I don't think Coronarius Redig. I think yep. that's how it is. Yeah, that, yeah. I have no idea how you pronounce it. I was avoiding saying it. <laughs> I think that's actually a stronger instrumental track than this one.
Yeah, that would to me would be like the one flaw in the record is like, and again, there's nothing wrong with the song. It's a, no. it's a cool instrumental, like you said, like it's got cool parts to it. But it's, it's just great. a placement on the record. I think you're you're completely right about that. It's just it, mistreated. Feels like it closes the book and then doesn't really need to be <laughs> reopened. But yeah, I mean, overall, it's an incredibly strong record. I think you're right that it's it is an underrated record as far as classic '70s albums go. I don't think it gets nearly enough acknowledgement. Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Yeah, it's absolutely one of my favorite Deep Purple records, and um, I would say anyone who hasn't listened to it or hasn't listened to it in, in a while, go back to it because it's it's really strong and really impressive. Um, after discovering the Mark III Deep Purple, I, I totally fell in love with Glenn's voice. I mean, it covered L2, but I just, as much as I'm a hard rock guy, I'm, I'm a hardcore funk guy too. For me, those kind of grooves are great. They're as heavy in their way as, as heavy metal riffs are heavy in their way, I think. So I just fell in love with Glenn's voice. And, you know, things are so different now with YouTube and all the streaming services. You can find anything you want. But, of course, back in the 70s and 80s, and even in the early 90s, if you wanted the music, you had to find the album. And that wasn't always that easy. You couldn't just, you know, look it up on the Internet because there was right. no such Internet or order it from eBay or Discogs or something. You had to find the actual album. And I think everyone from that era, from 70s into the 80s and whatnot, who dabbled in any kind of record collecting has had one album on their want list that was like their holy grail. The, <laughs> that one album that you just searched right. for for years and you could never find it. And for me... That album was Glenn Hughes's first solo album, Play Me Out. I could just never find it. I worked in a record store, a great used record store, for like three years. And during that time, nobody ever walked in the door with it. I never even saw it. I know it was reissued, I think, in 1983, but I never saw that version either. So for years, this was like my bucket list record. Right. Um, and finally, in 1995, it was reissued on CD, and that was when I was finally able to hear it. And I did eventually track down a, a vinyl copy. But for the longest time, this was like searching for the lost city of gold for me, this record. Um, did it come out in the United States? I'm, I, I don't even remember. I know it, it first came out in Germany on some obscure label, and then it came out on a subsidiary of Purple Records in the U.K., uh, I'm not even sure if it came out in the States. It it was not a successful record uh, right. in, in any measurable sense. Um, which I'm looking at, of course, I'm looking at Discogs now because you said that, and I'm looking through, uh, and don't 100% hold this to me because I'm just kind of scanning through this, but mm. I'm looking and I don't see, I see it released in the UK, Australia, Japan, Germany, France in 77. I don't see that it was ever released in the US, which is probably why you never yeah. saw it. Yeah, it was it was really hard to find. And of course, there's been other records that I've searched out over the years, but no record really has held that kind of mystique for me, that, that one record that you're just searching for. And you know, after getting the record, I, I can't say that it's a perfect record. There's, there's some filler on it. But the stuff that's on this record that's good, I think, is really good. To me, when I listen to it, I, I get frustrated because I don't hear any hooks. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's the thing. I, I'm listening to that thinking, like, what was the single? Um, but, you know, tell me, I, tell me what songs you like because I want to be, like, prepared for a revisit of it. Well, for a Deep Purple fan, this record will be a shock because it is nothing like a Deep Purple record in any way. 
Glenn always had a serious funk and R&B side to him, but this record is 100% in that direction. It's the funkiest, uh, most soul R&B record that he's ever done. Um, He's touched on that through his solo career, but nothing has ever been as dedicated to that sound as this record. You know, when people would ask me to describe Glenn's voice, I always say, well, just imagine if Stevie Wonder sang for a hard rock band, because that's Glenn's voice. Mm -hmm. And Stevie Wonder is absolutely his biggest vocal influence. You can really hear it. then. yeah, it's so apparent on this record. The, The first two tracks are, I think, my favorite two tracks on the record. I've got it covered. The opening track, really funky, clear right out of the gate. This is not a Deep Purple record. Great vocal by Glenn, um, great backing vocals on it. Um, the second track on the record, Space High, is even more Stevie Wonder. That's kind of a slow, grindy funk number. 32 saucers. This record is all about the vocal performance, really. But you're right. There isn't really a single. I'm pretty sure he produced it himself for years, like decades. He was a mess. And he was a mess when they made this record. And um, I'm sure that didn't help. There was no one giving him guidance. And the, he cut the record in 10 days. He, he says it was recorded over a 10-day period, and he didn't sleep once during that 10-day stretch. <laughs> oh my God. But then... He fiddled with it for months in the mixing stage, so it took a long time to come out, but the actual recording of it was pounded out in like 10 days. Yeah, there was there was like no money made by this record. It sank like a rock. It came out, it, you know, at the height of punk rock too. So this record was neither fish nor fowl. You know, it wasn't hard rock. It wasn't really an R and B soul record. It just didn't have a niche. And then you know when you like you said, there's really not not a single like not something that grabs you as like that radio friendly in that sense. It's not a terrible record by any stretch of the imagination. It's just one of those ones that I'm left with, like, his voice is so great. 
you have Mel Galley, you have Dave Holland, both these guys are trapeze. You have, yep. I think, uh, Pat Travers. Pat played Travers on plays this, on a couple of songs, I think. Yep. Yeah. You have this, like, you know, this great array of talent and you have the, the name recognition coming out of purple. It's just sort of a missed opportunity. But as you said, Glenn has been pretty honest about, I think he was living with David Bowie at the time or, yeah. or like in LA or like, I mean, yeah. like, at the, the height of most- Bowie's. Uh, that's what at the height of Bowie's cocaine psychosis, the station to station period. And right. I, Glenn says that Bowie was originally in the early, early stages. They had talked about him producing this record, but that that fell apart probably long before they ever even got to cut tracks. But there was some talk of them working together, right. but uh, which would <laughs> that would have been interesting. They say that It was kind of like a no-win thing because this record didn't really have an audience. You know, Purple fans were going to be like, what the hell is this? Exactly, exactly, I, yeah. 100%. And there was, you know, I can't imagine really that there would have been much appeal on rock radio for it or on the R&B stations for it. Nope. So it didn't really have a place to go. I guess if I was going to put the best spin on it, I would say it was a valiant effort for him to try to create something new of kind of mixing all these elements of what he'd been doing before into something that blended the rock with the R&B. It's not a lot of rock on this record if you'd really look yeah, and at credit, the- and, and that is true. I mean, however out of his mind he was, credit to him for like trying something different. I just think it's just a missed opportunity to me. I love his voice and I think there's some very interesting singing on the record. In many ways, despite how messed up he was, he was maybe at his peak as a singer. He was just singing so great. Then there's a song called Solution that the beginning of the song just has him vamping vocally that's just really showing off what he can do. Fifteen or twenty years ago, I found the page where they had like the limited edition candles, and uh, I was in grad school at the time, I think, and I didn't have a lot of money, but I was like, I don't know, the candles were probably like thirty or forty dollars, and you had to be shipped from the UK. I, I, it's like probably if they had been in stock, I probably would have like spent the money to get the, the yeah. burned candles. You know, I don't know what I would have done with them. I probably, you know, just would have like lit them one time and like you know blown them out or something like that. But um, yeah, big fan of that record. Big big fan of that that burn record for me. Yeah, me too. Well. Th- Thank you for coming on and talking about it. Thank you for picking it. I I really enjoyed both your your books. I finished the Templeman book earlier this year. What was the biggest thing you learned from talking to Ted? What was the biggest surprise, I guess, for you? Yeah, no, great. It's like the, the right 
question to ask. It's just like what a record producer does. Like I thought I kind of knew. And then you realize that the short answer is just like, it's everything from being like a coach to a psychologist, to being a musical director, to being an arranger, to being a, you know, a father figure, to being a, a friend. Like there's, you sort of realize that the successful record producers based on what I learned about Ted, you go through a lot with these artists and to kind of get them over their insecurities and their fears and their overconfidence and having it state hard truths to them being like, this isn't good enough, or this is, this is good. You just don't know it yet. You know, he just really opened my eyes to what, what, what that job involved. And, And the last thing I'll say along those same lines is just the sort of being a project manager. Right. The book is well worth the read for any music fan. I would highly encourage anyone to check out that book. And the Van Halen Rising book's fantastic, too. The definitive book on on the early years of Van Halen, absolutely. So thank you for for both of those great books. I don't think you're working on anything specific right now, but is there anything that you would like to, or you're thinking about possibly maybe doing anything you want to tease us with or... Yeah, I've got some uh, book ideas. I just haven't sort of gone full in on the next, the next book for uh, for now. But I'll you know I'll have something to announce before too long. And uh, I really appreciate the enthusiasm people have shown for these two other books. It's been really great, and uh, it's nice to get emails from people on a regular basis saying they you know they enjoyed this book or they like this. They you know oh one of my favorite things is you know people write to me and go I never really listened to Little Feet before. But after you talked about them in the book or, you know, one of the other things that Ted produced or something, they go and listen to it. So that's been fun because that's one of the things that Ted was really focused in doing the book with me is he wanted to pay tribute to the artists and the great music. Greg, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I love the conversation. It's great to talk about Deep Purple. It's great to talk with a fellow fan of this album. Thank you for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it anytime. And uh, Ray, we'll think, think about round two. Maybe I'll come up with another band and uh, we'll join yeah. together again some other time. It'd be great. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Greg. You're welcome. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Greg and maybe it inspired you to go out and pick up a copy of Burn or the Glenn Hughes album, Play Me Out. I love both of those records. And please check out both of Greg's books. His book on the early years of Van Halen is called Van Halen Rising, and it's great. It really is. The Ted Templeman book is called Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, and you'll learn a lot from that book, too. Both books are available on Amazon or through your local independent bookstore. And I will be back in two weeks with another new episode. You can find all of our previous shows on our website, lovethatsongpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. On behalf of the Pantheon Podcast Network, I thank you for listening, and I will see you next time. (laughs) 